90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Checking through the second week of the semester, so yeehaw. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's already been a busy one for you when oh, we're talking offline. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, they all are, though. It just all runs together over and over again, but that's okay. It's been pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah. Uh, we did finally make it out to Colorado after driving through Kansas and seeing about a half an inch of ice uh, on all the trees. Yeah, super scary. Super scary. I was hoping that you were going to make it. So. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. But uh, we are out here. So now it's been in the process of painting, as I've been discussing with a couple of our listeners over email. <laughs> uh, we've been getting lots of feedback and some audio comments. So we're going to have some of those for you on our next show. But this week, we have a special treat, right? Uh, right, exactly. So I will have to say that our guest is probably one of our first listeners besides our parents. Um, <laughs> and not just because <laughs> I, I made him do it. Well, mostly because I made him do it. Um, but today, we're going to talk to Jay Minton. And he has a lot of different titles, um, most recently the Ookpik director. I'll let him explain that here in a second. Uh, the OA trail crew director at Philmont Boy Scout Camp. So I don't know if a lot of people know where that is. We'll talk about that. And the conservation field coordinator out there as well. So we're super excited you're here, Jay. Yeah, I'm great. really <laughs> excited to be here. Hey, Jay, thanks for joining us. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got to where you are going back as far as you'd like. Okay, yeah. So I guess kind of the constant in my life, the one thing that I've always been involved with is the scouting program. I got involved whenever I was about five years old with Tiger Cubs, and we would do kind of every week we would get together and meet and we'd do like arts and crafts. And it was more of an opportunity for our parents to hang out and take us on camping trips and stuff like that. <laughs> and we would... You know, as I progressed, I got, I continued to be involved and moved up through the ranks into Boy Scouting and was involved still kind of like every week we would go to, we would have a meeting at seven o'clock every Monday and we'd just talk about different outdoor skills and different stuff like that. And we'd go on campouts and as I got older, the campouts got longer and the cool stuff that we did, we went to farther away places and kind of got more of an exposure to the outdoor recreational kind of stuff. And that's kind of where I'm working today. I kind of bounce back and forth between different scout camps and work on, you know, various logistical program facilitation stuff. And I grew up in Oklahoma City. I went to school in Oklahoma City for middle school and high school. And then whenever I graduated and went on to college, I went down to OU and started out as a pre-med major and quickly decided that that wasn't exactly the route that I wanted to take and shopped around to some different departments and took a couple geology classes and really liked my professors and really liked the coursework and kind of the science behind it all and got a degree in geology and it's kind of more of a, a hobby nowadays than a career but it's still something that I enjoy quite a bit. Oh, so that's great. So you said that some of the professors are people that drew you into the to the topic. So was it a specific part about, was it their teaching style or the courses that they were teaching? What really got you into, what, what hooked you in geology? Well, I think that a big part of it is because my professors were so approachable. 
you know, whenever I was a pre-med student, I was taking biology and chemistry, and there were just, you know, so many people in the class, I felt like anytime I went to go see a professor, they were too busy to really, like, sit down, and I felt, you know, so behind in my classes that I didn't really feel like I was appropriate in, like, reaching out to them. I always felt kind of inadequate was going up to them and in geology, my professors seemed much more approachable, and our guests, our class sizes were smaller, so it allowed for more of a kind of student-professor interaction, and I really enjoyed that. So we talk about that a lot on here, is that people seem to take uh, like take an intro geology class because they have to, and then they wind up completely changing their major, so that's kind of cool to hear as well. I wasn't aware that that's, you know, something that you had basically done too. Yeah, and so I guess whenever I first took a geology class, I took intro to geology and volcanoes and earthquakes at the same time, and there was a lot of overlap between those two classes, but I think volcanoes and earthquakes was one that really kind of drew me in, because that's what I really like about geology, is these kind of big earth-building events and the kind of catastrophic events that happen so quickly is just the power involved with those systems is really mind-boggling to me. Yeah, the catastrophic events are always a good way when you when you need to get an intro geology class. Uh, you need to get their attention back. Yeah. It's time to hit the volcanoes chapter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is fascinating. Like you said, there's so much energy. Uh, so I guess, what was your favorite part of the the whole curriculum because I think you specialized in not just general geology, right? Yeah. So I graduated with a degree in environmental geology and I was kind of intrigued by all of the issues with environmental conservation and the kind of, that's more in line with the kind of recreational, um, recreational resource stuff that we do out at uh, Philmont is we look into our impact on the on the world and kind of interacting with the, the earth in kind of a, a big sort of hippy dippy kind of way just you know <laughs> the way that the earth impacts our existence in a way that our existence impacts the earth is kind of this very cool sort of interaction and in understanding the different ways that um, we both affect each other. That sounds super in line with, obviously, a bunch of stuff that I teach as well. Um, but going back, before we get too far ahead of us, we have a lot of people that listen from out of the country. Can you explain what Boy Scouts, like what the, these big Boy Scout camps are? Yeah, so I guess Boy Scouting is this big organization that exists all throughout the country. And there's, you know, local units where kids actually get together and they spend time in a big group and kind of working through character development and working in teams and kind of building up different um, character traits that will help people in their lives. So we focus a lot on leadership and kind of putting things in the hands of the youth um, in terms of planning and kind of organizational stuff. And, you know, you start out as a younger scout, you do more stuff like in classrooms, you work on first aid requirements and learning knots and how to build shelters and things like that. And then once you get older, you kind of get to put all those skills into practice. And the big Boy Scout camps are kind of the 
the mecca, if you will, of <laughs> scouting where people can go out and experience these really unique wilderness experiences in and be able to put those skills that they learned whenever they were younger to the test. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the Boy Scout program, there's lots of these sub areas that you can learn about, specialize in, and then uh, is there like I I was was not in the organization. So do you test it to get your your badge for it, or how does that whole process work? Yeah. So typically, there's um, a kind of a, a hierarchy in learning where whenever you're first starting out, you have skill sessions as we call it where we just do teaching and a lot of times it's the older scouts teaching the younger scouts and getting in there and kind of giving them ropes and you know built having them uh, with fire building and stuff like that gathering the materials themselves and kind of walking the younger kids through it and you know once you reach the point where you're confident you can test and like show your skills to the adults uh, volunteers who you work with and once they're confident in your abilities, then they sign off on stuff. And so there's kind of that that uh, advancement sort of level where you learn a skill, you show it to somebody to prove that you know it, and then you're given that award or that achievement. And then there's also all these opportunities kind of where I work, where we take people on bigger trips and give them an opportunity to put those skills into practice. And it's not really with an express purpose of receiving an award or like reaching that level of achievement it's just an opportunity to put all that stuff into practice and have a really cool experience so my son just started scouts this year at jay's insistence for sure (laughs) um but uh he loves it it's so much fun we have the pinewood derby is saturday oh nice (laughs) i'm super excited so i mean this is stuff like um you know, I'm the outdoorsy one and my husband works on cars. And so it's great because Scout's kind of like, it gets all of that, right? Like he's already done compass stuff and, you know, small orienteering things, but now he gets to build this race car and he's doing that with his dad. And it's, it's a really cool thing. Um, I can't wait till he gets further along and can go to some of these places like Philmont or Northern Tier where you're at right now. So like, what, what is the age that you start out at these getting to go to these big boy scout camps um so different camps have different age requirements and different skill level requirements so going back to what i was talking about earlier you have kind of achievements and ranks and you do enough skills you prove that you know enough skills and you receive kind of an upgrade in rank and you have to have a certain rank and a certain age to go to these high adventure camps as oh. they're called um oh, so okay Typically, it's a, right around like being um, about 14 and then I think at least um, like a first class or star scout. Oh, okay. Yeah, and kind of going back to what you were talking about with um, having the different adult leaders who are have different strengths, like you being a geologist and really like being outdoors and your husband being really into cars. I had just this huge depth of knowledge in my adult leaders like I had um, doctors and I had um, car mechanics and you know business owners and lawyers who were there to kind of take on uh, different skill sessions and teach different different skills kind of from their background so I did um, auto mechanics merit badge with a scoutmaster who was a mechanic and owned a shop with his brother and like all of us got together one day and went to his shop 
and change the oil on our cars and stuff like that. Um, one of our scoutmasters was for a time the um, president of the um, the Oklahoma Shooter uh, Rifle Association or the Hunters oh, Club okay. or something like that. And we all went out to um, a place in Oklahoma City where we could do rifle shooting and trap shooting with shotguns okay. and stuff like that. So it's cool because you have all these different adult leaders who have different backgrounds and can kind of provide training based on their strengths. So at the, at the camp, so let's say Philmont, mm-hmm. how many scouts are there at a time and how many leaders are there at a time? <laughs> okay, so um, there's a lot of different levels to that question. So a troop decides that they want to go to Philmont and they put together a crew of about 10 people. And typically, it's you have to have at least two adult advisors who go with them, and up to up to four adult advisors. So you have a group of ten with about eight to six of them being youth, and two to four of them being adults. And that forms a crew. And at Philmont, it's kind of this big operation where we have all kinds of different crews coming out every day. Um, I think in the height of the summer, we typically have about 300 crews that show up to Philmont and 300 crews wow. that go into the backcountry and 300 crews coming out of the backcountry at the end of their trip every single day. So in terms of logistics and, you know, moving through the paperwork involved with all that stuff, it's a huge operation and it's a very well-oiled machine and it's cool to be a part of and get to see it all work so smoothly. <laughs> That's a massive amount of people. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How big is Philmont? Um, it's about 214 square miles. Okay. Um, so it's, um, it's a pretty big place. It's out in the Sangre de Cristo mountains of like, um, North East New Mexico. So it's kind of right at the very foothills of the Rockies. And there's a lot of really cool geology going on there and a lot of cool landscape for people to get out and visit. So, Yeah. Looking at the website right now, it's 219 square miles, and that translates to about 140,000 square, uh, or 140,000 acres. That's unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) Is this all just land that the Boy Scouts have purchased? Is it something somebody gave them? I mean, Philmont's been around a long time, right? Yeah, so that's the really cool thing in kind of our history as a location is it was donated to the boy scouts in a series of donations wait phillips is actually the individual who donated it and he grew up in iowa and kind of lived the western life and moved out west and then ended up moving to oklahoma where he went to school for geology and became this very successful oil businessman and he purchased land out in new mexico And he was living out there, and eventually him and his wife decided that they had uh, amassed more money than they could ever spend in their lifetimes. So they decided that they wanted to give back, and he was really impressed with the local Boy Scouts in the area who would come onto his land and use it and leave it, you know, virtually untouched. So he decided that he would give um, a portion of the land to the Boy Scouts of America. And then three years later, he donated about another chunk of land the same size. And so... That's where the name Philmont comes from. It was originally named Phil Turn, uh, the Rocky Mountain Phil Turn Scout Reservation in honor of Mount or Wait Phillips and the good turn that he had done for the Boy Scouts. And then huh. three years later, whenever he made his second donation, we changed the name to Philmont 
uh, Phil for Wade Phillips and Mont for the mountains. That is awesome. I had no yeah. idea that there was a such an Oklahoma connection and geology connection. Obviously, Phillips is a pretty famous company. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. His <laughs> right. brothers, I think, actually started the um, the Phillips sixty six company, and they were the mm-hmm. ones who convinced him to go to school for geology. And <laughs> yeah, so it's a very very kind of interesting situation because Wade Phillips grew up in Iowa. Went out west and then moved to Oklahoma, and I grew up in Oklahoma, lived out west for a portion of time, and now I'm actually looking to move to Iowa, so I'm like <laughs> yeah, the anti-Wade Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, that's amazing. So you said that there's this geology connection at Philmont. You said there's a lot of cool geology there, and you're a geologist, so... Do you use your degree regularly out there? I know you said at the beginning it's kind of a hobby, but I have to imagine that it really comes in handy. Yeah, and so that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you all a little bit about today is the work that I do out at Philmont is part of the conservation department. And what we do is we manage the backcountry infrastructure, the trails, the campsites, and you know, kind of the soft surface walking paths that we use out there. And... I guess in terms of amount of work that we have to do, we have somewhere around 200 campsites and um, I'm not sure actually, I think that campsite number is wrong. I think it may be much higher than that. But in terms of trail, we have about 370 miles of trail that we maintain and build and kind of work on throughout the summer. So what I do is I help design trails that are going to be put in, in terms of like where we're going to be working in the future. And I help supervise the actual trail construction projects where we work with volunteers who come out and do work to kind of give back to Philmont. And the cool thing about that is whenever you're actually looking at where the trail is going to be whenever you go up to a completely untouched hillside and you decide where you want to put the trail you have this whole landscape to look at and to take into account because whenever we're out there we're using hand tools and there's not really any power tools involved so it's all based on the material that you have around you and that includes like the soil type the rocks the different trees that grow and just the overall landscape of the area so It's not necessarily an exact science, but we do have a little bit of that stuff that comes into into play whenever we're um, thinking about how we're going to go about putting a trail in a certain area or what kind of challenges we're going to face whenever we're working there. Yeah, I can see that being really useful. And that's that's an incredible amount of trail. Yeah to try to maintain. I can't imagine doing that much less, you know, packing all your tools in and, uh, that's, that's some hard work. (laughs) Yeah. We have about, um, 100 seasonal staff members who work in the conservation department doing anything from trail construction to trail maintenance and backcountry campsite maintenance and environmental education and invasive species control. Our program also runs the GIS program, which provides all the mapping material for, um, the maps that are used by crews out in the backcountry. So we do a lot of work in a kind of a short amount of time, and it's really impressive to get to be a part of it because it's so, um, 
it's so gratifying because you go out and especially being on a design team, whenever you go out and you pound stakes into the ground and say like, this is where we're going to put the trail. And then you get to go back a couple months later and you've actually got trail built in that section. It's a very kind of impressive system to, to look, to watch as it progresses. I mean, you talk about those numbers uh, and I mean, it's no joke building a trail. You don't think very much about it. Well, I think maybe some people don't think very much about it, right? Okay, it's a trail. You just walk there. But that's not what it is, right? I am it's a lot more work than just staking. Everybody walk here and then there's a trail, right? Yeah, there's a lot involved with it. There's a whole lot of dirt that's got to be moved. You've got various problem sections. If you've got to build a rock wall, um, you've got to think about where you're going to get the rock and where you're going to get all the backfill that goes into it. So getting involved with the process has really given me an appreciation for the different trails that I use in my free time because I, you know, it's, it's cool because my girlfriend is a outdoor instructor in terms of ecology and she's stopping and she's looking at all the trees and all the plants and stuff like that. And whenever we're on a hike, like I've got to stop and I've got to look at all the rock walls and think about all the work that was put in. So we both kind of tire each other out sometimes with our, yeah. our geekiness. Uh, she wants you to look up and you want her to look down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, check out this packing job. They did a great job here. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even think about how do you even... I never thought about building a new trail, just like walking up to a hillside, you know, because so much of the time when we're on the field, we're there's, you know, two or three or five of us and we just walk up the hill, you know, but trying to prepare for you said there's like 600 crews that are out or 600 crews that are out at any one time. Right. So. Um, well, more than that, I'm sure, because um, I don't know. I'm not sure the exact numbers, but you've got 300 crews that hit the trail every day. And their trek is, you know, 10 days long, oh. typically. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, oh, man. Wow. Via that, there's just tons <laughs> of people out. We have about 22 to 23,000 scouts come out every year in that three-month kind of window. Wow. So how, how well do the trails hold up then with all um, this usage? Yeah. And so that's kind of an interesting topic to get into is the history of trail building and kind of how our understanding of trails as systems kind of has evolved over time because, you know, you look at trails over on the East Coast and, you know, whenever people were first moving into those areas, we weren't really using the outdoors as a recreation. You know, we were working on like carving out existences. And so trails were built kind of out of necessity and they would kind of go just straight up the hillside. And whenever you look at the way trails are built out west, it was, you know, about 100 years or maybe 50 to 60 years later before people started kind of building trails as um, as a recreational system. So making trails nice and enjoyable to hike on involves not sending them directly up the hillside. So <laughs> um, also in terms of sustainability, you you know, we talk about trail building all being all about hydrology and psychology. You've got to think about how the water is going to act on your trails. And then you've got to think about how people are going to act on your trails and your user interface. And so looking at some of the older trails at Philmont that were kind of just built in the initial stages, they've got a lot more problems going on with them because they weren't really built with as much foresight as we have today. 
So whenever we go out and decide where we want to put a trail, it normally kind of starts with like point A to point B. We've got like a system, uh, an area that we want to open up and make more accessible by putting a trail in. And so we look at kind of the hillside between those two places and the topography and what kind of the easiest route would be. And once we have that kind of figured out, we go out to that area and hike it and assess it a little bit and maybe start out tying some flagging tape. And once we get a better idea of exactly where we want to put it, we'll go out and we have these little devices called clinometers. And we just, they're little surveying tools, they're handheld, and you use them kind of by creating a reference point on the person who you're surveying with. And you put them up to your eye and you look at like the reference point on their face, typically like their nose or their eyes if you're about the same height. And you shoot to kind of a bearing towards them that gives you the inclination. And based on that, we'll tie some more flagging tape and then we'll go out and start pounding some stakes in and stuff like that. So kind of the average grade that we want our trails to be is about 8%, meaning that for every 100 feet you walk, you go up 8 feet in elevation. So there are, there's a lot more involved with it. You've got kind of different grade reversals that we use to help shed water. And you've also got to take into account your cross slope. So if you've got a really shallow cross slope, maybe your cross slope that's going to be like parallel to your walking surface is maybe only 10 degrees. And if you build an eight degree sloped uh, trail on that, then you're not going to get the appropriate watershed because it's going to run more down your trail than off of it. Uh. So, hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating that you said, think about the user interface of the trail because yeah. that is completely not the thing that I think about when I hear user interface normally, <laughs> but I, I'm sure there are a lot of considerations that go into that. And I am assuming that you do quite a bit of uh, work as well to think about the impact of the trail as well on, on the environment. So not only how well will it hold up, but how can you minimize its uh, obtrusiveness in the environment, right? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, you know, in there we talk a, I talk about kind of figuring out where the trail is going to go and you get kind of your rough outline. We kind of talk about positive and negative control points in that. So you've got to have um, positive control points are like really awesome views or like cool rock outcroppings or maybe a really big tree that you want to take people by so that they can kind of see those nice, neat little nuggets of um, nature as they're walking. And negative control points are places where it's going to be like really hard to build a trail or maybe you've got like a really open hillside where the sun's just going to be brutal and you want to kind of avoid that spot. So we kind of like to create this experience for people whenever we're thinking about designing trails is we want to have something that's not going to be super brutal to hike, something that's not going to feel like overly long for people and, you know, kind of give them those nice little moments to appreciate the beautiful place they have around them. I'm definitely using the word nuggets of nature. The next Nature time, nuggets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the next time I take a field trip, <laughs> which is this weekend, so great. <laughs> nice. You have to tell me how that goes. Oh yeah, yeah. There's will be a lot to talk about, I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> Lots of nuggets. 
they're not going to appreciate these. It's going to be too much hard work because I don't worry about how brutal things are. But. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's that's something I realized a lot whenever I was going through field camp is I, I was really able to appreciate the conditioning that I was giving myself. And I had to think about how my physical shape was going to kind of uh, impact my ability to make decisions about, you know, how a 60 year old is going to use the trail. Right. That's uh, man. See, that's good. That's another thing for field camp. So yeah, you're not a field mapper geologist, but all of that, you know, knowledge that you gained there, you're still putting into practice every day, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's really cool because I am able to kind of look at rock outcrops and maybe get like a little bit more excited about them than other people would and i totally like spend a lot of time nerding out about the rocks that are around and like it's also like i appreciate the rocks because of their like intrinsic nature but also i look at rocks and i think like man that would be really great to put in a rock wall like it's perfectly flat on two sides and it's got like perfect kind of shape to it man that's awesome (laughs) yeah wow (laughs) um so when these kids go out do they have someone from Philmont with them like do you ever go out with them or any of the trail crew or backcountry crew go out and like point out these nature nuggets or (laughs) or is it just like made for them to discover on their own Um, So there's different programs that we offer. Um, The typical program that kids do, they come out with their own adult advisors and they sign up as a group that knows each other and they come out and they work with a Philmont Ranger who is kind of a backcountry guide for the first three days of their trip and they go out and kind of teach them the different ways that we do things and how to hang bear bags and how to, you know, set up your campsite, how to um, go to the bathroom in the woods and things like that. And they'll work with them and teach them all those skills kind of in the first three days. And then after that, they leave the trail and go back and pick up another crew. And depending on their background, they may, you know, offer little bits of information, teachable moments, if you will, whenever they come to a cool, um, cool feature about the landscape or something like that. And then, so there's, that's kind of like the main program that people, um, people participate in whenever they come out. And then we've got what we call special tracks, which are individual opportunities for scouts who maybe have been to Philmont before or maybe can't get a big enough group from the troop to come out. They can sign up for an individual trek. And in the conservation department, we run several of those. Um, The OA Trail Crew Program, which I work with, we have groups of about um, 20 participants show up every week. And then we have foremen who are staff members who go out to the work site and they build trail for a week as that big group of 20. And then once they're done with that week of trail building, they go off. Um, they split into two separate crews with about 10 kids in each crew. And then the two foremen who are their staff members and they go on a backpacking trip. And so individual treks typically have their um, staff members with them for the whole time because that provides the adult leadership. We also run the Roving Outdoor Conservation School, or ROCKS for short, which is a 21-day program (laughs) where kids come out and they do um, 21 days of backpacking. So they're in the woods for those three weeks, and they have a trek set out for them. And, you know, every day there's a different lesson to be learned kind of with the environment around you. So they do lessons about... 
um, the fish of the area, fire ecology, um, dendrology, studying the trees, looking at the different birds that are around. And then I actually had the opportunity to lead one of those treks. And my big thing was geology. Surprise, surprise. Um, and then <laughs> I gave a really cool talk about hydrology um, next to a big stream and talked about the different ways that the water interacts with the, the environment around them. And, you know, kind of with that program, you do all the different lessons like with each crew, but depending on what the background of your rocks instructors are, they may um, be a little bit more excited about a particular lesson than other ones. So there's kind of the opportunity to get exposed to a lot of different things that people may not be aware of. And so that's cool. kind of the cool thing about that program is because you work with scout, scouts who are right about the age where they start to go off to college and you have an opportunity to maybe open their eyes to a different field of study, which they yeah. may have not considered before. Um, and then there's a couple other programs. There's the Rayado program, which is 20 days, and you have two rangers. Um, the same people who lead the regular treks and spend three days with the crews will go out and be with the crews for the whole 20-day experience. And that focuses more on just like hardcore backpacking and putting in lots of miles and learning different backpacking skills. But there's still that opportunity to learn about the different environmental aspects of where they're at and stuff like that. That is super awesome. Um, I know Philmont's not the only one of these big mega scout camps, though, right? Because you're not at Philmont right now. You're up at Northern Tier. Yeah, and so we've got kind of four national high adventure bases, which are you know, really big camps set in different parts of the country, and they kind of revolve around different programs. So Philmont is out in New Mexico, up in the mountains, and it focuses on backpacking skills and kind of the history of the area out there. Where I'm at right now is Northern Tier, and it's kind of in the very northern part of Minnesota. I'm actually about seven miles from the Canadian border, where I'm sitting right now, <laughs> if you were to draw a straight line. And this is a private location that scouts come and then once they they come up here and then they leave for about a 10-day trip into the boundary waters which is literally like just right off the property here like our property butts up against it and in the summertime what we do is we do canoeing programs where scouts come out and they do um, about a 10-day canoe trip and they can do fishing and it's more so of just a straight wilderness experience in the Boundary Waters. is such a unique place. There's all these different lakes that are interconnected via rivers, and you know you can portage across little strips of land to get to another lake, and it's a very cool kind of different program. And in the wintertime, which is the program I work with, it's the Ookpik program, which is the Inuit word for snowy owl, which is kind of our mascot here at Ookpik. And what we do is we do just cold weather camping trips and we run anything from like cross-country ski trips and snowshoeing trips to kind of opportunities for crews that want to do a lot of ice fishing. And then we've also got a dog sledding program where we have anywhere from like two to four groups of about eight kids come out and participate in a dog sledding trip for about three days at a time. Wow. So that sounds, uh, again, t 
sounds pretty logistically challenging because what's the average climate like when when they're out doing this trip you said it's cold weather camping but how how cold is cold weather camping here <laughs> yeah so that's what's really cool about this location is in northern minnesota the winters can be really brutal and so you know we're not any strangers to going out and camping in negative 30 degree weather um you know as a as just the raw temperature before wind chill and um you know negative 30 is kind of the extreme end in terms of cold but you know, typically anywhere from about 10 degrees to negative 10 degrees is right around in kind of the the typical range for us. Re- lately, it's been unseasonably warm. So it got up into the high 30s last week. And that was even more challenging because whenever it's negative 30, yeah, it's cold, but people don't get wet. But whenever it's, you know, above 32, snow starts to melt and kids start to get wet. And once you get wet, it's so much harder to stay warm. It was unseasonably warm here yesterday. It was 74. <laughs> Man, I would burn to a crisp. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to let you know what you were missing. <laughs> <laughs> Not missing much. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, I obviously want to hear about the sled dogs. Like, I've seen some pictures of these guys. They're pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so working with sled dogs is a phenomenal experience, you know, the way that I kind of describe it to people is having about 40 of the best coworkers you could ask for. Um, <laughs> they're always excited to see you and they're always really excited to get out and pull the sleds. And, um, you know, you feed them in the morning and you feed them at night and they're always just super energetic. And, you know, your job is just to pet dogs. Um, the only, you know, drawback is you have to scoop their poop. Um, but that's well. just kind of, that's, worth it in terms of not having to have interpersonal relation or like conflicts <laughs> with people. <laughs> so it's, um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it's really cool because each dog tends to have their own personality. You've got some dogs that are really high energy and are really social and just kind of come up to anybody who walks into the dog yard. And then you've got some dogs that are more shy and don't really want to interact with people and they spend most of their time in their dog houses until you start hooking them up to the sled and then they are just like a completely different dog. Their energy is really, really high, and they're just excited to get hooked onto the sled and go for a run. So you have to think about that when you're putting the dogs into teams? Do um, you take that into account, or do you just hook them up and go? Yeah. <clears throat> so the interesting thing about dogs is they'll typically, like, fight in bet- like amongst their, their sex. <laughs> but Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like... A girl dog will fight with a girl dog and a boy dog will fight with a boy dog, but they don't typically fight with like the opposite sex. So in terms of, you know, building teams, we contract with different dog sledding companies here in Ely. Ely is a town that's about 20 miles away from here, and it's kind of the dog sledding capital of the continuous United States. And we contract with two different kennels that provide their dogs and they typically will kind of build the teams for us, but will allow us to make changes as we need to. So maybe you've got, you know, two dogs that are really high energy that end up getting put next to each other. And if they are just like spending the whole time fighting with each other, sometimes we'll kind of move them around and try and separate the, the fighters, if you will. (laughs) It sounds like trying to make groups for um, mapping exercises too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
There's definitely sometimes you know, where you get dogs and you just want to put all of your favorite dogs together because you know that it would be great, <laughs> but then you realize that all the other dog teams would be struggling, so you've got to kind of spread oh. them out. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly like putting together groups for yeah. mapping. <laughs> you got to spread that around. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow. So... I mean, we've talked about, you know, working at, working at Philmont, working up at Northern Tier, but what would you say is your favorite thing about doing what you do? Um, that's a difficult question. I think that the reason I do it still is because doing these high adventure trips as a youth really had a big impact on me. Um, I look back on the person I was before I first went to Philmont, and I spent, you know, most of my time indoors sitting around eating junk food and like playing video games and I first went out to Philmont for like a training trip before the summer that we were going to go out for our big 10-day trip and it just kicked my butt hardcore and (laughs) I struggled and I realized that if I was if I was going to have any hope at all in surviving like the 10-day trip then I had to get my act together and get um, more active and you know I went through the process of getting out and hiking and preparing for that summer trip. And I had a phenomenal time and I learned a lot about myself and about working in a team. And it really helped to turn me into the person that I am today. And I choose to do this work currently because I want to give other people that opportunity to get out to a place as special as film or as special as Northern tier and have those challenging experiences where they grow into more effective individuals and it's kind of an opportunity to give back to an organization that's impacted me so much and I think that that's probably my favorite part of the job that I do is having the kids you know right now I don't get as much opportunities to interact with participants one-on-one as whenever I was a leader for those trips that I explained earlier but now I get to see kids whenever they first show up to Philmont and then I send them out in the backcountry for 14 days and I may see them like once or twice during their trek. But I definitely get to see them whenever they come off the trip and we have kind of our closing uh, banquets and getting to see the change in those individuals like from the person I sent out in the backcountry to the person who comes off is really re- rewarding because you see people come off and they are put with people who they don't know from all over the country and they come off the trail and they're such a tight knit group of individuals and they walk a little bit taller and they've got this really cool experience to draw from whenever they go home and they're faced with other challenges. And I feel like it's kind of in a very overly righteous sense. It's an opportunity (laughs) to like create more effective individuals to go out and be successful in the world. And plus, like, the work that I do is absolutely astoundingly fun. Like, I get to spend most of my time outdoors and go dig in the dirt and play with dogs. And, you know, the work itself is very challenging and very stressful at times. But then you have those opportunities to get out and experience just how lucky we are to be in a place like this. And it's very, it puts things in perspective. That's going to make me cry. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so an even harder question. What's your favorite place outside? My favorite place outside? <laughs> um, 
I think that yeah. my favorite place <laughs> outside is a place where I am with um, a place where I am with a phenomenal group of individuals doing something fun and getting to kind of have an experience that is totally unique. And so that's something that's also really cool if I can dodge the question so hard. It's so great because, <laughs> you know, the there are all these different places at Philmont or at Northern Tier that I've been many times. And every one of them is different because you're with a different group of people. So I think that if I were to name a favorite place outside, it would be in relation to an experience I had there with a group of people who would probably uh, never um, be in that group again. Um, gotcha. One story that I will share with you is um, at the end, it was the last day of my second Philmont trek. And so I'm with a group of people who had been to Philmont before, and we were kind of the older group, and we chose a little bit harder trip, and we had a really great group of people. And on the very last day, we woke up really early in the morning and hiked to an overlook where we could watch the sunrise. And it was my 17th birthday. And so we're watching the sunrise on my 17th birthday, the day we're going to hike into base camp. And we're up on the side of this hill and, you know, the sun starts to come up and you can just see the line of the shadow as it kind of rises over the mountains. And, you know, the sun starts shining all over base camp and... In that moment, everybody just started singing happy birthday, and it was probably, like, Aww. the best birthday that I've had up to that point, at least. That's awesome. That is wow, so that is. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, yeah, Shannon, you're going to have to tighten that question up and ask for coordinates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just need a lat lawn, sir. That's all I was looking for. <laughs> uh, 42? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. That, that is the correct answer. <laughs> so I, I had another uh, kind of one last question here of what what tools are essential to you? So what do you use or carry every day that you just couldn't do your job without? Um, well, food and water are <laughs> definitely up there. Um, <laughs> but in terms of it depends so heavily on what you're doing. Um, one of the most important things for me to have is I've got this backcountry French press that's all made out of plastic, and I've got like some delicious coffee from my favorite roaster in the area. And being able to get up in the morning before anybody else and make like a really thick cup of coffee is one of the best things in terms of like getting my my day started off right it's all about that is a great answer yeah it's all about giving yourself those little commodities those little amenities that make it feel a little bit more like um, like a routine i feel like that's what coffee does for me is getting up and like going through the motions of boiling water and you know steeping the the grounds and then pushing it down and getting a little bit of quiet time to myself is one of the best ways to start the day because, you know, whenever you have a profession in the outdoors, you, you know, you're doing work all the time and you've got like a job to do. And a lot of times you don't really get those opportunities to sit and enjoy 
the place where you are. And I feel like my mornings and having a cup of coffee and enjoying the quiet sounds of nature is a great way to kind of, again, put those things into perspective. It's an excellent coffee press too. I I have the same one because of Jay. So <laughs> it's pretty, GSI, pretty spectacular. Java press. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll link it in the show notes yeah. <laughs> in case anybody else wants to grab one. Uh, I will say, <laughs> I will say that there's also uh, something we can link in the show notes. Uh, Jay extolling the virtues of Northern Tier when he was there as a young pup himself. <laughs> There's a YouTube video about that out there too. So uh, yes, that's right. I forgot about that promo. Yep, <laughs> I didn't. Don't worry. Well, Jay, is there anything else you'd like to to add as a, a closing thought to tell folks? Um, I don't know. I think that more than anything, what I realize with the job that I do is it's important to get people outside, and it's important to allow people to be in awe of the world around them. So in terms of being in the field of science and being in, you know, the kind of the educator background, I really enjoy having those experiences and getting kids outdoors and letting the environment around them kind of speak for itself. You know, a lot of times whenever we're providing these experiences, there's all this work that goes into it to try and make it extra special and have those meaningful moments. But a lot of times just giving people the opportunity to go out into the outdoors and fend for themselves and kind of interact with nature is one of the best ways to make really meaningful, thoughtful people. So take your kids outside. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that is an excellent piece of advice and uh want to thank you for taking the time out up there to join us and have a chat and tell us all about what you do it's been a blast yeah thanks yeah. for having me Well, Shannon, I think that was a, a great and really insightful interview, don't you? Uh, I do. Uh, that was really, there were some really good uh, nuggets in there, I will say. <laughs> yes, yes, full of nuggets. Uh, oh. But it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> That's our homemade cowbell. Okay, so I'm going to have to stop letting you pick the papers because you found another one I from know. BMJ. I can't help it. Number one, it's easy pickings. <laughs> and number two, I figured we're talking about kids in the outside. So we're going to talk about kids again in this in this fun paper, which is 
Ingested Foreign Bodies and Societal Wealth, Three-Year Observational Study of Swallowed Coins. By Firth, <laughs> Zing, and Biller. So yes, this is a study about <laughs> seeing if there's any relation between how many coins children eat and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. <laughs> Oh, gosh, this is amazing. You know, I mean, besides the fact that these BMJ Christmas stories are amazing, I just love the abstracts. It gives you everything you need Um, right there. So (laughs) these researchers from Harvard, by the way, studied whether uh, these ingested monies had any measurable effect on the stock market. Um, But it wasn't just monies, right? There were 18 objects, including 11 coins that were ingested during the observational study period. <laughs> right. So the idea is, are more coins eaten when the stock market is higher or lower? Is there is there any kind of correlation in there in the, the uh, pediatric wealth market, <laughs> if you will? And I, I like in the methods, they say, uh, this is a direct quote from the paper, after ensuring that our institutional review board had a well-developed sense of humor... We compiled data on all numismatic and sundry detritus acquired uh, NASDAQ composite index from children's gastrointestinal tracts and so on. So this is a three-year period from August 2006 to July of 2009. Uh, And like you said, there weren't only coins swallowed. There are accounts of several different things being swallowed, accounts from other hospitals of pieces of Christmas tree fireworks uh and a culinary more sophisticated italian child it says that uh, aspirated a lobster antenna exactly uh rubber door stoppers um batteries a cockroach marbles <laughs> yeah oh it was pretty good um they say in their intro the background historically the frank the mark the gilder the drachma and other currencies went down best in Europe, but the introduction of the euro saw a wave of new pediatric euro aspirants. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is good. <laughs> they did like inventing words. Oh, yes. In this paper, it, it was pretty great. I mean, that's a science word right there. Um, so, just like John already said, they hypothesized that the trickle down effect from the stock market good or bad, it says, would be reflected in what trickles down the pediatric esophagus. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so they have a figure in here. Uh, it's an x-ray of an ingested coin. And uh, in some of these, it looks like they actually had the data of, okay, you know, we had two pennies out of this one patient, for mm-hmm. example. And in some cases, they were trying to judge what the coin was from the x-ray, right. uh, which could do some significant skewing of their data uh, they, right they exactly because the size of the coin can be greatly distorted by the x-ray oh, right and a nickel and a quarter already are similarly close in size and so they said that that was um had a, a large you know propensity to skew their data five cents 25 cents so right uh, <laughs> uh, and they say uh so let's see the synthetic can be turned to good use when wagering on the value of the coin to be extracted. They're talking about how to, so, you know, if, if the doctors want to bet on what coin was to be extracted, uh, they have some ideas on whether it's a quarter or a nickel. And they say, parenthetically, before placing one's retirement funds on gastroesophageal features or 
derivatives, attention should be directed to the more proximal gastrointestinal tract <laughs> to ensure that the tongue is firmly in the cheek. <laughs> Man, these papers are good. <laughs> yeah, this had a lot of thought that went into uh, the, the wordsmithing here. But so, yeah, there's the x-ray. There's another picture that shows a one cent, five cent, 25 cent American coin. Uh, and I like Aww. the summary box. You know, we, we normally like the summary box in the BMJ papers because it sums it up nicely for us. Uh, so what is already known on this topic, the two bullet points are small children often swallow coins and the stock market valuations have been extremely volatile in recent years. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> um. <laughs> and as what this study adds, it's that children decrease the monetary supply. And it's difficult to detect the plausible association between the value of the stock market and the value of coins that children ingest. <laughs> I do like how in the conclusions, they also, they start to bring chaos theory into this as well. <laughs> yes, they and, do. And I love it because, I mean, it's not really as silly as, you know, you may think it is. Right? This silly little effect of kids swallowing coins. Maybe if there's enough of it happening, it could affect right. stock markets. Uh, and then they invent the word numismedical. <laughs> uh, further numismedical studies are urgently indicated to stress these are to stress test these possibilities, perhaps funded by a tiny fraction of the government financial bailout and ideally conducted from tax havens favored by the financial set, such as Monaco, Bermuda, or the Virgin Islands. That's the last <laughs> sentence of the paper. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. So that is your Fun Paper Friday, of course, link in the show notes if you would like to take a look at this wonderful article <laughs> for yourself. Oh. If you have fun papers to send us or any feedback, which we have a lot of, in fact, we may do quite a bit of that on the next show. Uh, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. We haven't been taken down yet, so that's good. Uh, John is <laughs> at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, we're in the uh, swung chat room on Slack. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Fun Paper Friday! Yay! <laughs> That's our homemade cowbell. Mom, I can't, I can't hear. I can't hear. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.